Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Language connects us to each other, but it also ties us to our ancestors and culture. The Mohegan tribe has been working to restore and preserve its language, and this month the tribe got great news. The diaries and papers of the last fluent speaker of the Mohegan language have been returned to the reservation in Connecticut. Today, where we live, we learn about the woman who fought to preserve the tribe's language, Flying Bird Fidelia Fielding. She passed away in 1908. We'll hear from the chief of the Mohegan tribe and from the tribe's historian and medicine woman who has written a play about Fielding called Flying Bird's Diary. You can join us, too. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to the show Chief Mutawi Mutahash Lynn Malerba of the Mohegan Tribe. Chief Malerba, welcome back. Ah, Wikis, Lucy, thank you for having me back. We're very happy to be with you this morning. Also with us, medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel. She's the tribal historian for the Mohegan Tribe, and she's written an award winning screenplay and play about Fidelia Fielding called Flying Bird's Diary. Melissa, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you, Lucy. Kuglossen. Good morning. So I'll start with you, Melissa, because you wrote this screenplay and play. Who was Flying Bird Fidelia Fielding? Flying Bird uh, was a very central character in Mohican history. She's related to most of the people in the tribe, uh, but she had no offspring herself, uh, biological offspring. She lives uh, as a child with her seamstress mother and traditional grandmother, Nana Martha Uncas. Uh, Her father is a whaler, like many men in New England at that time, and he wants her to attend school. He's a literate person. But her traditional native grandmother, Nana Martha, feels school might make her lose her language. Uh, And so on her first day of school, she has a, a terrible culture clash over her understanding of the world in which humans are not more important than animals, children uh, should not be seen and not heard, and and English is more important than native languages. Uh, Fidelia uh, is given the name of flying bird by her grandmother, uh, the bird who flies apart actually, because she's, she's different than everyone else. And so as she gets older and the United States government tries to eliminate native languages, uh, the tribe mostly gives up speaking it. But she does not despair. She continues to be a language warrior. Uh, She continues to maintain her beliefs in the spirits of the woods. Uh, And she keeps a diary of all things, which is wonderful in Mohegan. Um, But, and this is the sad part, in old age, she develops dementia. And her diary, which contains the last written words in Mohegan by a fluent speaker, burns up in the home of a college professor. Uh, Flying Bird doesn't give up hope, uh, despite the fact that, um, you know, she has this setback. She hangs on to teaching her niece, Gladys Tantaquidgen, the culture. And then we have a surprise ending, which only happened recently, (laughs) which is that the, the diaries are returned to the people. 
So it's it's a full circle story. Mm. And we'll be talking about all of that throughout the hour, Melissa. But tell us about your great aunt. You just mentioned her, Gladys Tantaquidgen, her relationship with Fidelia. Gladys Tantaquidgen was Fidelia Fielding's mentee, which meant that from a very young age, she spent a lot of time with her great aunt Fidelia. And Fidelia taught her about the little people of the woods the Makiawi Sug. Uh, she taught her our stories, our traditional stories about Chanamede and um, all of the all of the beings that that we believe inhabit this universe that are unseen and seen. Uh, but she did not teach her the language because she was afraid she would be beaten uh, as a child, like she was if she spoke it in school. And so Gladys did not learn the Mohegan language. Mm. Before we hear a scene from your play, your screenplay, Melissa, I wanted to ask Chief Malerba, I loved how Melissa described Fidelia as a language warrior. What did you hear about Fidelia when you were growing up? I heard exactly the same thing, that Fidelia really looked to preserving our culture and our language, not just for the present day, but for future generations. And in that regard, I think she was very foresightful she was also a very independent person it, it, during a time when women perhaps were not, it was not valued for women to be independent. She was definitely someone who was going to live her life in the way that she thought was best for her and best for our tribal people and honored her culture. And I think that's really what sets her apart as someone who is extremely important to all Mohegan people. And in fact, most people consider her a grandmother, despite the fact that, as you heard, she did not have children of her own. Um, you know, we honor people by calling them grandmother. And so she was a grandmother to all of us. Mm. Melissa, we heard a little bit about your great aunt. When you were thinking about uh, writing this screenplay and play, you have this oral history, but what else did you have? Uh, what did you work with in terms of, of writing this screenplay? In many ways, I had to work with all of the people around Fidelia because she mm. was a bit more of a recluse than the rest of her family. Uh, her mother was very gregarious, going in and out of the city as a seamstress. Her father was a whaler. Um, her cousins, uh, from whom you know, the chief and I are descended, uh, were much more social. But because of her, her difference and sometimes the suffering of her difference, other people not appreciating her, understanding her, she kept more to herself, especially as she got older. And, and so that I, that I think is, uh, is important. So when we talk about this, uh, the time period that she was living in, set it up for us, Melissa, uh, about uh, what it was like for the Mohegan Nation at the time where you have uh, this scene in, in the school uh, with uh, Fidelia and a teacher. Oh, this is such a wonderful time period in New England, the early 1800s, because so few of us really understand uh, how different things were in the early 1800s uh, as compared to the late 1800s. You know, the country was brand new, right? The United States as, an, as a nation was, was brand new. Uh, Mohegan was very old and it was trying to hold on to something very old. But there was uh, a lot of a lot of change in the early 1800s. Uh, and the the east coast was an interesting place for native people of course because we were the first to experience you know this culture clash of of our worlds and it was a very dynamic place uh whaling in connecticut particularly was was a very engaging profession and it brought in all people um, of all nationalities and races and backgrounds and our mohegan people were part of it so the men were all out and about 
And then you have the women and the women weren't. And so I can only imagine what it was like, not just for native households in this period, but for others, all these men traveling all over the world and all these women pretty much staying put. Uh, so it's, it's a time when people weren't completely parochial, but they were to some degree um, a little bit more so by gender. So I hope that helps give you an unusual mm. sense of the time. You're hearing medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel, a tribal historian for the Mohegan tribe. She's written an award-winning screenplay and play about Fidelia Fielding, who we're learning about today here on Where We Live, uh, called Flying Bird's Diary. Could you read a scene from that play, Melissa? Oh, that's that's a great idea. Uh, I'll have to set one up for you. Uh, this This particular scene takes place on Fidelia's first day of school when she beats puritanical school teacher, Miss Raymond, who believes humans are more important than animals, children should be seen and not heard, and English is superior to native languages. Fidelia doesn't understand these notions. And when her teacher anglicizes the name of her great historical station, Wonksus to Uncas, their culture clashing dialogue begins. And here is a snippet and be kind on my acting. <laughs> Fidelia. Miss Raymond, I said that Uncas's name is correctly pronounced Wonksis, which means fox in English. I thought everyone should know that. Miss Raymond, you see class, uncivilized cultures name people after animals. Fidelia, my father said there was an English king named Richard the Lionheart. Miss Raymond, having a lion heart is not the same as being a lion. In either case, I'm sure your father also told you to respect all adults. Hmm, elders maybe. He also taught me that Wonksis, uh, Uncas, respected the English, so I should learn English. <sighs> you should learn Mohegan to show respect for Chief Uncas, Miss Raymond. Students don't make demands of their teachers, nor do they question them. Delia, then how do teachers learn anything? And again, that's from Flying Bird's Diary. In the play, what happens to Fidelia because uh, she speaks up for her culture uh, to this teacher? Well, as most of you know, corporal punishment in the early uh, you know, 1800s is, is wide and, and vast in America and uh, not, however, on Indian reservations. And so she sees the teacher uh, becoming violent, but she really truly does not expect to be beaten. And she is beaten. And this is... Uh, perhaps more of a shock to her than it might be to um, the non-Native students because this is unknown in our culture. And so this is a pivotal moment in her life, uh, the suffering of this brutality and realizing that a difference of opinion can result in this sort of treatment. Mm. In your screenplay, you also have other characters, uh, other Mohegans who are feeling pressured to assimilate into this white English speaking culture. Can you talk about uh, some of uh, the interplay between uh, these characters and Fidelia? Absolutely. And of course, I have personal favorites, so it's, it's terrible <laughs> to be biased, but Emma Baker is uh, a very famous Mohegan figure. She was the medicine woman who trained Gladys Tantaquidgen. And Emma and Fidelia are almost the same age. They're good friends, but they're very, very different. Uh, Emma is trying to toe the line and do well in school and is very successful in school. And she's also trying to be very social and is very successful in the tribe. She becomes a leader in the tribe. And she loves Fidelia. And she loves the fact that Fidelia carries on tradition, 
but she wishes Fidelia would bend just a little bit. And, uh, and yet, you know, as is the case very often with a lot of our tribes, we, we may wish that, but we certainly respect those who don't because they are the ones who, uh, who carry things on. And, and in her later years, Emma is, is very grateful to Fidelia for all the preservation work that she does. But likewise, Fidelia is very grateful to Emma for holding the tribe together. So they're, a, they're an interesting duo. Mm. Sounds like a, a really interesting uh, screenplay and play that you have written, uh, Melissa. We should mention that, that there is a, another family connection. I believe your daughter directed it. Yes, my, my daughter, Madeline Sayet, is uh, a director of stage and uh, she is is involved in, in this particular production. And I'm very happy because she's a, a fairly well-known director and this is my first play. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on the ground floor here. <laughs> Chief Midler, but I wanted to go back to you when we when we hear about the pressures on uh, many Mohegans in this time period of this uh, play, but also in history, uh, where they were pressured to not speak the language, to not pass it on to their children. Uh, can you talk about uh, when you were growing up, um, how you have experienced that or what was it shared to you from family members? Oh, sure. Um, and so I grew up on what is known as Mohegan Hill, as did Melissa. Our tribe was very small when I was growing up. I was growing up in the 50s, and there were perhaps about 500 tribal citizens. And so we felt like we knew everyone. It was still a very, very close community. Um, but we had experienced a lot of losses by then. Despite the losses, the tribe continued to hold on. Um, so we lost most of our reservation, or as I say, our reservation was taken. Um, but yet we still had tribal people living on the lands that were our tribal lands. So we still had a very big presence in Mohegan. Um, but I grew up, you know, going to, well, first I went to uh, uh, kindergarten in a firehouse while they were building Mohegan School. Um, and I attended Mohegan School, which was not an Indian school, but it was named after us. And a lot of the streets there were named after us. Yet we were being taught the predominant culture. And I was a very shy kid growing up. So you can imagine, you know, in second grade, we're singing about Columbus discovering America and, you know, being too shy to even speak up to say, well, that's not exactly right. We were still here. So there was this hangover in terms of the dominant culture informing the indigenous culture when it should have been the other way around. So my father was able to speak a, a, a bit of Mohegan, but again, he did not teach it to his children, which would have been my mother. My great-grandfather great um, was the chief during the tribe, uh, uh, during the 30s to the 1950s. I did not get a chance to meet him. So the, the interesting part of all of this was that a lot of the women were the ones that held on to the culture and tradition. We had a church um, that was really our social center. The land that the church was built on was deeded to Mohegan by Mohegan women uh, for as long as Mohegan walked in perpetuity. Uh, and so we're really lucky to have that piece of land. And I like to say that we had a sewing society, which I call the Mohegan Underground a bit, because they were the ones that did speak the language to themselves. And they are the ones that did practice the culture and pass on all of those traditions and teachings. So we're fortunate that we do have so much of our history and our culture intact. Um, but it would be so nice if 
we were able to speak the language continuously because our language informs what we do and how we think about the world and our relationship to the world in ways that are different than English. And I think that's something that we are trying to restore and to understand because we believe that the richness of that language will help us understand our history and our culture in a way that uh, English will never do. Again, you're hearing Chief Mutawi Mutahash, Mutawi Mutahash, Dr. Lynn Malerba, who's chief of the Mohegan tribe in Uncasville, Connecticut. Also with us, medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel, as we learn more about Fidelia Flying Bird Fielding. And coming up, we're going to hear about this language restoration project that the Mohegan tribe has been working on and how these lost diaries and some papers have been returned to the tribe. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. In 2004, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, acquired the diaries of flying bird Fidelia Fielding, the last fluent speaker of the Mohegan language. This month, Cornell returned those papers back to her descendants. My guests are two members of the Mohegan tribe who worked to get Fielding's diary and papers back to the reservation. And we're learning about how the tribe has been working to restore and preserve its language. With us on Zoom today, Chief Mutawi Mutahash, Dr. Lynn Malerba, Chief of the Mohegan tribe, and medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel, also the tribal historian. So Melissa, you mentioned briefly about uh, Flying Bird's diaries uh, and what she wrote about when we think about diaries today people go to the store and they get a fancy journal and they have particular pens and i'm just wondering when we think about her diary what did she write on well in the in the early 1800s diaries were handmade they were stitched by hand and so individuals kind of piece them together unless they were very affluent and so in her childhood, the early diary she would have kept would have been would have been like that. In her later life, oftentimes they were old booklets of uh, advertisements and things that that people would receive um, kind of domestically at grocery grocery markets and things like that. And so they were sometimes a pharmaceutical guide or something like that. And there'd be blank pages in the back and people would use those as a, as a diary or, or a note-taking device. And that's what Fidelia did. She didn't have any money. Uh, she, you know, lived very meanly in terms of, um, you know, what she had in terms of food and shelter and belongings. And so uh, these diaries were, were not uh, abundant. They're not thick, they're thin, they're sparse, uh, but they're very well cared for and, they also don't contain what I think we think normal diaries contain mm -hmm. nowadays. So tell us more about, uh, again, uh, what she wrote about. Well, as, as is the case with many traditional Mohicans, and this relates to our language, she writes a lot about animals and the weather and the land, the plants, because she saw all of these beings as family, as relations. And that is not just in a metaphoric way. That is in a very real way. Uh, her world didn't just include the other humans that, that she encountered and everything else was something she passed through. She was very engaged with uh, all levels of beings, spirit beings, plant beings, um, 
animal beings. And so her comments are, are very detailed. For instance, she might tell a story about an encounter between a snake and a fish, or she might, and she did in fact do that, or she might talk to, to you a little bit about the land and how things were growing and the weather. The weather is everywhere. Um, the weather is a living thing in our language. And she, she loved to talk about the weather. And, and I laugh about that because, um, when I was away at camp, the elders in my tribe would send me letters as a child, and all they ever talked about was the weather. And I used to think, "Oh man, what what is this? What is this Mohican thing about talking about the weather?" <laughs> That's so funny. When we think about uh, one thing that really fascinated me about uh, this particular story about uh, Fidelia is how some of these diaries and papers, how they were lost and found, then lost and found again. Can you walk us through that? Yes. So that's that's a really confusing story. So I will try and walk <laughs> you through how the how Fidelia's diaries came to be lost and found and, and, and lost and found. And the short version of the story is that uh, as an elderly woman, uh, Fidelia began to suffer from dementia and things got misplaced. And so she she had some of her diaries. She had her most recent diaries. Um, she, I think, had forgotten about some of her earlier diaries. And she loaned the most recent diaries to a, a student who had a professor at Columbia University. The student let the professor look at them to study the language, but the professor's home uh, had a fire and all of these diaries burned. And as far as anyone in the tribe knew, this was a tragedy beyond speaking. Um, the last words in our language were gone. They were gone forever. Everything was gone. Uh, Fidelia had, had, been, had been losing her faculties. This was, this was just beyond words terrible, but what we didn't know um, was that perhaps there, there, there was something else that would happen later. And that something else that happened later occurred a century ago during our last pandemic. Mm. During the Spanish flu, uh, everyone was stuck at home. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> uh, including her uh, adopted son who was staying at mom's old place. Mom had passed away. Fidelia was long gone. And he didn't have too much of an interest in his mother's things in general. Um, he was kind of a worldly man who worked as a carpenter in the city. But he didn't have much else to do, so he started rummaging through her things, and lo and behold, he found more diaries. Mm. And when he found those diaries, he immediately contacted uh, a professor with whom she had worked, Dr. Frank Speck, who had also um, been a friend of, of Fidelia's and visited the reservation. And he, he told he told Speck about that, and uh, Speck was was thrilled, as was uh, you know the rest of the tribe. And uh, and Gladys Tantaquidgen was asked by Speck to come to the University of Pennsylvania and work with him on the stories and the diaries and uh, Mohegan culture. So out of the ashes of that last pandemic came uh, this beautiful story of hope. Mm. Chief Malerba, how did then Flying Birds diaries and papers end up at Cornell? Um, they somehow ended up, I think it was the Huntington Library or the Huntington mm. Collection, which then was given over to Cornell University. And, you know, we became aware of the fact that Cornell University had the diaries and the rest of Fidelia's papers. And as we were restoring our language, we thought, well, it really is the perfect time to approach Cornell to ask for the transfer of all of Fidelia's diaries and, and papers back to us. 
And I have to say that Cornell was so incredibly uh, welcoming of this request and forthcoming with helping to make this happen. We approached the uh, President Pollock uh, for, from Cornell University and as is tradition for us, we um, had both elected leaders as well as traditional leaders as signatories on the letter. So the chairman of the tribal council, James Gessner, and the then chairman of the council of elders, Larry Roberge, and then Melissa and myself signed a letter to President Pollock. Um, and as soon as President Pollock received the letter, she immediately involved uh, Gerald Beasley, who is the university librarian. Uh, and immediately they started looking at a way to make this happen. So their generosity was astounding to Melissa and myself. We thought that perhaps they would feel invested in keeping these diaries. And in mm -hmm. fact, they understood how important it was to us to have Fidelia return to us because we mm -hmm. believe that as whenever anyone creates something, they imbue their spirit into that object or that um, object of cultural, uh, I will call this matrimony rather than patrimony. Mm -hmm. and. And they knew that as we're on this journey to restore our language, that this would be such a joyous homecoming for us. So we're forever grateful, number one, that they preserved all of these documents in such a very careful way. And number two, that they understood how meaningful it would be for all of these documents to return back home to Mohegan Hill, which is exactly where they are now. Mm. Were you prepared? How prepared were you if, if Cornell wasn't uh, responsive? When I think about uh, the many uh, universities and institutions that hold on uh, to uh, items and papers from other cultures, uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were. Were you surprised that they were so responsive to your request? Well, we had some experience with Yale and the return of some of our objects of cultural patrimony from Yale. That took a little bit longer, only because I think we were new to how would we affect that transfer. And David Skelly from Yale was just wonderful. He said, well, rather than go through NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Repatriation Act, which seems to put people in their own corners and then it gets legal involved and you know, it's more of a, a, a conflict as opposed to a collaboration. Uh, David Skelly said, well, why don't we do a museum to museum transfer? Museums do that all the time. And that seems to make more sense. And so we're very grateful to him for setting the stage for this next journey that we would embark on. And so Melissa and I did a Zoom call with uh, Gerald and his team. And he said, well, gee, would you like to record this meeting, this Zoom meeting? And we said, well, no, we don't. <laughs> Think you need to and and but he asked again and so we said all right fine we can record this meeting if you'd like to well the reason he wanted to record it was and mind you this is really the first zoom meeting that we had set up with him was to tell us that they would be only too happy to return all of Fidelia's diaries and and uh and all the other documents that are associated with that and so Melissa and I were very emotional on that call because wasn't what we were expecting. We thought there would be some negotiation or there would be a few roadblocks along the way. And instead, it was just, you know, this, you know, immediate collaboration on how can we make this happen? What makes the most sense? And how quickly can we get this to occur? Mm. A medicine woman, Melissa Tantaquid and Zobel also here with us here on Where We Live. Melissa, take us back to that moment on that Zoom call when you got that news. What went through your mind? Well, I I think shock and joy and awe and hope 
and gratitude uh, and mostly just absolute just thanks to Cornell for their generosity. It was overwhelming. It really was. Uh, it, it also felt like so many people were in the room with us. Uh, I think the chief and I were thinking of those who are no longer with us who made yes. this happen. Mm. Chief Malerba? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And you talked you know, about, I think go ahead. The other thing that I think is, is just remarkable about that moment um, was that we weren't necessarily expecting it, but for a little And so Melissa and I were just bursting with wanting to make an announcement, but we really felt that Cornell should be the one to announce um, in their way. And so we worked with their um, communications team to develop, you know, kind of a, a, a communications plan around this, but we didn't want to take their thunder away from them necessarily because it was so joyous for us. And they were just so wonderful in, in working through all of the details that we wanted them to announce uh, to the world what they had done, because we think that this really does set the stage for how tribes will work with um, institutions of higher learning and museums. And we also wanted to make sure that we got our tribal citizens in the loop because we never want them to read about something of such historic nature in the newspaper. So we had to time all that very carefully. And once we knew that Cornell was going to write their article and publish their article the night before, then we told our tribal members this joyous news. And we said, please don't post on social media until we tell you that you can, until Cornell <laughs> has come out with their a communication and an article on that. So we were, it was, it was difficult, I think, to keep that secret because it was such a joyous secret. Mm. Again, here on Where We Live, Chief Mutawi Mutahash, Lynn Malurba, the Mohegan tribe, and medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel, as we learn about Fidelia Flyingbird Fielding and the fact, the fact that she was the last fluent speaker of the Mohegan language, uh, the tribe working to restore and preserve that language. And so now that you have these diaries and papers back, uh, Chief Malurba, I'll start with you. So how uh, will this help you and who are you working with to restore? or the language? So we are very fortunate. We had one of our tribal members who initially went to MIT to study to be a linguist um, who has since retired. And then we now are working with Jesse Little Doe Baird from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe as our language consultant. The reason we chose her was because our languages are very, very similar. And we know that we don't have enough words left to us in Mohegan to fully uh, communicate in our own language. So we will be using uh, Mashpee words that will be translated into Mohegan words. Mashpee uh, translated uh, a Bible in the 1600s. So their language and their preservation of language is much more ancient. And so that's why we think that they're a good, uh, a good source and resource for us to work with. Jessie uh, Little Doe Baird has won national awards. She was named the USA Today top 100 people in a history in this century. And she also just received the Massachusetts Governor's um, Human um, Humanities Award. She has a fluency within, she has created fluency in her community with language nests with preschool children and up to now school age children. And we know that her program has been successful and we think that her program will be a good model for us to use. And we are fortunate that we now have uh, language apprentices working 
with Jesse and they're just amazing. It, some of our younger people in the tribe and I, I love to see their enthusiasm for this. So again, we're looking at wholeness. We're looking at, you know, the circle of life. So we're, we're translating something ancient into present day and it, the people who will carry on after us who then will inform the next generations. We are mm -hmm. just so thrilled to be able to do this. I'm glad you mentioned the language apprentices, because with us now on where we live on the phone is Autumn Koliva, who's working with linguist Jesse Dobaird on restoring the language. Autumn, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us what it means when uh, I say language apprentice. So what you're doing, what is your role in helping restore the Mohegan language with Jesse Dobaird? Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, my job currently right now is to learn the Mohegan language. Um, and the the goal of that is to eventually become a fluent speaker of um, my nation. Mm. So uh, we heard Chief Malerba talking about uh, how uh, Jesse Dobaird was able uh, to restore the language with the mash peas. And I'm wondering, um, how did that happen? What kind of immersion uh, classes or uh, time spent uh, with the tribe that, that she was able to do this? Can you walk us through that a little bit? Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, in the beginning, um, Jesse was hosting... Um, language classes for our tribal nation. Um, she was um, doing weekly class of immersion um, where an hour a week, um, there would be no other language spoken other than Mohegan. Um, that eventually um, turned into a, um, an opportunity for myself as we were looking to restore our language. Uh, and um, I was able to go ahead and um, work with Jesse and become one of the um, first Mohegan apprentices that we have currently. Mm. So now we're in a pandemic. So are some of these language classes going to be on Zoom, Autumn? They are. Um, <laughs> currently, we are in the process of holding um, an immersion class. It's a bit different than being in the classroom, of course. Uh, however, it's still as fun and productive. Um, we have uh, our first classes that we held over the um, over the spring summer time. Um, we had quite a few um, tribal citizens that had joined. I mean, over sixty tribal citizens that had joined into these um, classes, which was phenomenal. Um, we are holding uh, winter classes currently, um, and um, it's. It, you know, just we're, we're trying to get everyday conversation going within our nation. Um, you know, how are you doing? Are you well? How's the weather? Um, you know, just simple conversation. Mm. What does it mean for you personally, Autumn, to be able to do this, to learn the language? Um, it's actually, it's, it's very emotional um, to... To be part of something so much bigger than yourself, um, you know, for a long time, language was not allowed. Mohican language was not allowed. Um, and for for me to um, kind of be in the forefront right now of, and, and not just myself, but we have two other apprentices currently, um, but to be chosen um, to bring back our language that was, you know, once, to, once thought to be lost. Um, is, again, I mean, just very emotional, and um, I feel so proud. Mm. 
Chief Malerba, I understand you're learning the language as well. Tell me about uh, your personal experience with these classes. Well, I'm pretty terrible at it. Um, <laughs> and I think the older you get, the harder it is to memorize anything. And, and Autumn will tell you that I struggle through some of the classes. But I do think it's just so important to try. And one of the things that I think has just been great was, you know, I, I always tell the younger kids, please, you know, use whatever words you know in any way you know them and don't be shy because I'm not that good at it and we're all learning. And so one day at summer camp, this was prior to the pandemic, of course, we, I was walking um, past, you know, our kids that were at summer camp and they were in line waiting for lunch. And each one of them yelled out one of the words that they knew. And it just made me so happy that they're willing to try. And, and we're all, you know, we're all going to be in this together. And so we can be terrible together if we want to be terrible together. But I'm, I'm definitely enjoying all of it. And again, I think what's most important to me is it helps my worldview in a way that perhaps I haven't experienced in the past. So I love the fact that Autumn is doing this and I'm so proud of the work that she's doing. And I know that she is going to leave a legacy for my grandchildren and all of the kids that come after them. Um, so it's really been a, a wonderful experience and it's one that I, I really treasure. Mm. When we think about uh, the differences in the English language and the, the language that you are now learning, the distinctions of, of having animate and inanimate, uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Chief Malerba? Oh, sure. And, and it is interesting when we think about what is animate and what is inanimate. Um, and again, I think that goes back to Fidelia's view of the natural world. We would think of water as animate. We definitely obviously think of the rocks as animate because they're, they're our grandfathers. Um, so as we, as we think about how we engage with the world, that's, what, um, that's why language is just so very important to us. Uh, and, you know, we think about the fact that, you know, we always put the other person before us, you know, it's always you before me. And, and that's a matter of respect for another human being and another individual. So as we go through this journey and we learn um, our language in a different way, it will help us appreciate the people who came before us and how they learned to understand their place in the world differently. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to becoming more fluent and to really understanding the depth of the words underneath us. You know, when people say the word ancestor, um, that's an interesting word and it means, you know, a relation. Uh, but in our word, ancestor means those who came before us. And mm -hmm. it's really just a matter of how you're looking at that language in a different way. Well, I want to thank Autumn Koliva for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, she's a Mohegan language apprentice. Autumn, thank you. Yes, thank you. Take care. Also with us again, Chief Mutawi Mutahash, Dr. Lynn Malerba. I should have asked you, Chief Malerba, uh, again, what that translates to. So my name, I, I'm very blessed that our medicine woman, Melissa Tantaquitjan-Zobel, uh, provided me and, and blessed me with this name. Uh, 
as many people know, um, I was a critical care nurse and uh, my specialty was cardiology. And then I ended up in hospital administration uh, before I came to work for the tribe and then be a, an elected official and now the chief. Um, and so when I became the chief, Melissa said, you can't delay taking Mohegan name any longer. It's time. Uh, because I kind of went back and forth around, well, what should my Mohegan name be? And she mm -hmm. said, well, your name should be Many Hearts because you've held many hearts in your hands in the past. And now as the chief, you'll hold all of our hearts in your hands. And I thought, oh, leave it to Melissa to find the most perfect name. And so I proudly carry that name forward with me. Mm. And medicine woman, Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zobel is here with us. Uh, tell us about the name Tantaquidgen, Melissa. Well, Tantaquidgen uh, has been interpreted by the family to mean uh, going along fast on land or in the water. And it's an interesting name because it's it's over time had uh, many versions. One of the versions is Quidgen. Uh, and some of that came about, uh, so I'm told, because during the military uh, years of heavy military years of the first and second world war when all of our our family members uh were at war their military uniforms couldn't fit tanaquidgen they could only fit quidgen uh, but what's amazing about the name is that to my knowledge it's really the last or at least one of the last indigenous names left in connecticut and so we're back to how important it is to to save these things and to appreciate uh you know, these old words, because I feel in Connecticut, you know, half of our places are, are native names, right? And so much of what's around us uh, tells us about Connecticut, ancient Connecticut, and, and mm -hmm. what these places are. Uh, all, all of our place names, uh, originally our native place names, talked about the natural world, you know, the place of many fish or the place of the oak trees by the water. And so um, by using the name Tantaquidgen or, or other native names for places, uh, we're trying to put ourselves more in touch with uh, the natural environment and hopefully protecting it. Mm. This is where we live in, on Connecticut. Oh, go ahead, Chief. Oh, in, in fact, Connecticut means long tidal river. Thank when, you. Mm. Right. <laughs> We're going to continue talking uh, again with uh, Chief Malerba and uh, Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zomel right after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, we know COVID-19 cases continue to spike in Connecticut. And on Monday, New Haven Mayor Justin Elliger will join us, who's called for a rollback to a modified version of phase one. This is different than what the governor has talked about. And if you're a New Haven resident, you can also join that conversation on Monday. Now, today we've been talking about a really fascinating story, learning more about flying bird Fidelia, fielding with my guests, Chief Mutawi Mutahash, uh, Dr. Lynn Malurba, chair, chief of the Mohegan tribe and medicine woman, Melissa Tantaquidgen-Zobel. Uh, this is certainly good news in this pandemic that we're in, but I didn't want to end the show without talking about the disproportionate impact of COVID on uh, Native Americans around our country. Chief Malurba, can you talk about uh, from your many roles uh, with uh, different associations uh, and with our federal government, you know, what really concerns you about this pandemic and the fact that we're heading in the wrong direction? What really concerns me about this is actually just 
in equities of health funding for our first native people. And as we all know, um, tribal people are the only people that have treaty rights and trust obligations from the federal government to provide health care. And yet it has been woefully underfunded for since the, all the treaties were signed. And so the pandemic is really highlighting the fact that the conditions that our native people live in are still dire. We have multi-generational families and overcrowding in homes. We have at least, it depends on where you live, anywhere from 10% to 30% of native homes don't have running water. So how are you, do you have good sanitation if you don't have running water in the middle of a pandemic? People don't have the ability to isolate from one another if they are diagnosed with COVID. And there is not a lot of broadband capability out and about in Indian countries. So how do you even get the public health messages out to your tribal communities in terms of how to be safe, how to isolate, how to protect yourself, and what are the good public health practices that you should be using? Uh, Mississippi Band of Choctaw in our region, east of the Mississippi, has been heavily hit. And again, not a lot of broadband capability. So they've had to be very creative. They put lawn signs out throughout their community to say, here's how to keep yourself safe. But imagine in this day and age that you don't have broadband capability to educate your children while the schools are shut down, or that you don't have the ability to inform your tribal communities how to stay safe with all of this. Um, and so we see the cases rising um, without a lot of remediation. Tribes live far away from hospitals and clinics and the clinics that they do have don't have isolation capabilities. They don't have the negative air pressure that you would need to isolate a patient. So um, it's been very dire in Indian country. And as a matter of fact, the Commission on Civil Rights just updated one of their reports, Broken Promises, um, with a COVID update. But unfortunately, they did not vote to publish the report. And I'm not sure mm -hmm. why that, that is. Um, so we are working very hard through Indian Health Services to make sure that tribes are considered as the most high risk in the United States because they are. And when we lose people in our community, when we lose our elders, we are losing those things that make us so uniquely tribal. And we need to make sure that our elders live a good long time so that they can pass on the knowledge that they have and pass on the culture and the language to those next generations. And so we are working hard with Indian Health Services, with Health and Human Services, to make sure that the funding is available, that the vaccine distribution works well for tribes. But think about these mm -hmm. vaccine distributions and the fact that they need to be um, super cold and super yep. frozen, and, and that capability is, is going to hamper and hinder efforts to get people vaccinated. Mm -hmm. We just have uh, three minutes left, unfortunately, Chief Malerba. But when uh, you think about uh, the past administration and then uh, coming into it, Biden administration on January 20th, do you have a sense on, on how this administration will work with Native governments? Yes. And, and actually, I've been part of some, some of the conversations around that, as has the organization that we belong to, USET, all the tribes east of the Mississippi. Mm. And they talking about improving the funding for Indian Health Services, finally. $9,000 per person is the average that is spent on any American in this United States. If you have health insurance, $3,000 per person is what Indian Health Services is providing. So they're looking at how do we make sure that that funding is available? How do we make sure it's protected against um, 
you know, budget cuts? How do we make sure that it is protected against um, when Congress doesn't pass a budget and they go into a continuing resolution? We're looking at making it mandatory rather than discretionary funding, which is a problem for us. Why should it be discretionary when Medicare and Medicaid and veterans health is on the mandatory side of the budget, but yet Indians are on the discretionary side of the budget despite the treaty obligations? So Mm -hmm. they are definitely taking a lot of that into consideration, and they are having lots of conversations with Indian country on how best to improve that. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank again, uh, Chief Mutawi Mutahash, Dr. Lynn Malerba, for joining us today here on the show. Uh, we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so very much. Thank you. And also with us, medicine woman Melissa Tantaquijan Zobel, also the tribal historian for the Mohegan tribe. She's written this award-winning screenplay and play about Fidelia Flying Bird Fielding, which we, who we learned about today. You can watch a link uh, to uh, that uh, reading of this play uh, on YouTube. We're going to tweet it out at where we live. And I understand, Melissa, you and your daughter, Madeline Syed, have a radio play coming out with Heartbeat Ensemble next week. Sounds like a great project. It's a wonderful project. Uh, It's actually going to be five short 10-minute radio plays on Indigenous people in Connecticut and really pivotal moments in our history. Um, These will be acted by uh, Native players playing the Native parts, non-Native players playing the non-Native parts. Uh, It is really a wonderful uh, kind of amalgamation of the challenges that people went through in Connecticut. And uh, we hope everyone will listen to it on Heartbeat Ensemble. and it's an online radio show, so you'll, you'll be able to hear it anytime from this Sunday through the end of the year. Uh, and Heartbeat is H-A-R-T-B-E-A-T for those who, who don't know. I know sometimes I make the mistake. So We'll make um, sure to link it to our listeners <laughs> and our web post. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hope you have a great weekend.